Encanto, from the sermon series, God on Film, spoken by Pastor Doug Cho. We are kicking off our God on Film series with Encanto. And, um, you know, really excited to be doing this series with all of you, this movie in particular. Uh, this movie has a lot of themes and a lot of things that... Um, you know, really speaks. And what's crazy is I had never heard of this movie until I heard its music. Does anyone like share that experience? Like I heard the music on TikTok and Instagram first. And then I was like, oh, what's this movie? And they're like, oh, it's Encanto. And um, it never stopped. It never stopped. And I'm sure many parents here are still going, right? They're still going with it. Uh, before we get into our sermon, though, let's just pray together and we'll start. Mm. I'm sure you feel it in this room, but the Spirit is moving. We thank you, Father, for being here. Spirit of God, we thank you, Lord, and we pray that you would continue to fill this place with your presence, Lord, with the train of your robe, God. And Lord, that your people would experience you and encounter you in various and more powerful ways, Lord God. That you would speak to their souls, Lord. That you would break down strongholds, Lord God. You would dispel lies, Lord Father, and you would break chains here and now. Once again, we lift up our world to you, Lord, the, the world that you are, are sovereign over, that you are in control over, and we pray for deliverance for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We pray against the evil, Lord, and we ask that your will be done and that your kingdom will be built brick by brick. So, Father, here and now in this room, we just pray, Lord, that we would become more like you that your word would be spoken. The Lord, your word would be spoken with authority, Lord God, and that authority would be, mm, that your people would give them, uh, would give you permission, Lord, to have a seed planted in their heart, that they would be good soil, God. Because you do not force the need to bend. Be with us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Yes, Encanto. Never heard of it. Heard the music first. I'm sure some of you might be in the same boat as me, so I'm going to catch you up to speed. I'm going to spoil the whole movie. So here we go. Encanto is centered around the Madrigal family, right? They're the center of this community. They're this powerhouse family that this community is built upon. They're led by Abuela and her children and her grandchildren. And what's special about this family is that her children and their children were given powers from this candle that was passed on to her from her husband. See, the children, they have like some sort of a coming-to-age ceremony. And when they come of age, they get a power in front of the whole village. Right? Luisa has superhuman strength. Isabella can grow flowers wherever and whenever she wants. Antonio can speak to animals. And the powers go on. There's so many. And by the way, they also live in a magical house. Right? So there's many things happening about this family. And you know, we actually hear that in the opening song uh, of the introduction, the main character, Mirabel, has no powers. In fact, she's really embarrassed she has no powers. See, her ceremony, her coming-of-age ceremony was actually very traumatic in that she went, they were expecting to have these powers to be revealed in front of the whole village, and when it happened, nothing happened. And there's this shame 
about that over her because people know, oh, she's the family member that's very ordinary. What's wrong with Mirabel? What happened to her? What did she do? And oftentimes in this extraordinary family, she's often looked at as a burden. She's in the way. Even though she has the best of intentions, she's quite capable herself because she doesn't have powers she is a burden. Encanto as a Disney movie is actually very kind of unique because there's no actual character who's the villain. There's no actual villain. The adversary that we're facing in this movie is the dysfunction of the family. And we see that it starts from Mirabel's dis desperate approval, uh, desperation for approval, right? She has this desperation for her family's approval, for Abuela's approval, for her. But we find out that the whole family is actually suffering from something. There are many themes that are extremely relatable to any family. However, we're going to be focusing on this concept of having authentic relationships with yourself, with others, and with God. We're going to focus on having authentic relationships with yourself, with others, and God. And we're going to be looking at two opponents to authenticity that the movie points out. They're quite related to each other, so actually, I'm going to be referring to both. The first opponent is hiding or keeping secrets. The second opponent is performing. Performing. So we're going to look at the first one on hiding. How many of us come from families that don't like to air their dirty laundry? I mean, no one's really proud of their dirty laundry, right? But who does an exceptional job of hiding their dirty laundry or don't want their family image to be tainted, right? I do find that uh, the Asian culture might do it more uh, because it, it comes from a shame-based background, but I don't think it's actually cultural. I think it's across all cultures. There's this idea of hiding the things that you don't like. Maybe that cousin that did a couple of things that we don't really approve of or that sibling that no one really talks about, right? We are all proud of something when we hold them up and we're all kind of ashamed of something. I remember, um, so my sister is seven years older than I am and she worked extremely hard in high school. She was a very studious person. And when she got accepted into school, she got into all these Ivy League schools and she chose Yale. Right, she got into Yale, huge achievement, accomplishment. I was so proud of her that I was bragging about my sister, right? And my dad could not shut up about her getting into Yale. He would tell everybody his daughter was going to Yale, on lines, to strangers, and especially to their uh, community group of friends that they met. They met up every month, and there was always this contest about whose kid was better, whose kid was smarter, and she was his prize, always talking about how hard she worked to get into Yale and all the amazing things that she would do. And so... Because she was in, get, got into Yale and I was the son, there was an expectation that I would get into Harvard. Of course, she's going to Harvard because she got into Yale, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to Harvard. I was in middle school, right? Yeah, I'm going to Harvard, right? And so, like, things happened over the course of, you know, from then until I became a senior in, in high school. And, you know, I had a really rocky relationship with my family. And I wasn't the best student in the classroom. I really wasn't. But... 
I went to a decent school. I went to UIUC in Urbana-Champaign. You know, I, I went to a decent school. But when the community group asked my dad, oh, it's time for Doug to, to go to college, isn't he? Where's he going? He would nudge me, and I would have to answer. And then he would say, oh, but he's going to transfer. He's going to transfer. I made it a point not to. But there was a shame about me, about meeting expectations. In the Madrigal family, it's the same thing. There is something that is being hidden, a secret. During Antonio's coming-of-age ceremony, Mirabel is alone, and she's just looking at the house. She's wondering what's going on. And all of a sudden, she sees cracks forming along the walls. She sees cracks, and then she sees the magic candle start fading. So she freaks out. She goes. She interrupts the party. She tells Abuela, there's cracks in the walls. The candle's fading. We have to do something. And everyone runs out, and they see that nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. And in front of everyone, Abuela says, she's just making a scene. She just wants attention for herself. The party should go on. Everything's fine. And then she dismisses it. Even though she did know that cracks were indeed forming in the house. She denied it, even though she knew it was true. See, these cracks represent fractured relationships due to hiding and performing. But the same thing goes for our relationship with God. Authenticity is necessary for our relationship with God. The things that are hidden, the things that are buried, the things that are unsaid, unconfessed, all these things affect how we relate to God. They change your relationship with him, just like how they change your relationship with other people. Let's look at Genesis 4. Genesis 4. This is the story of Cain and Abel. Adam made love to his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant, gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. When we read this passage, there's a few questions that come to mind. And usually the one is, how come God looked at Abel's offering with favor and not Cain's offering? If you look a little later into the Bible in Hebrews, Hebrews 11.6 tells us that it was only by faith that Abel offered a better offering. And, you know, some people, they, they theorize, uh, some scholarship says, oh, maybe Abel offered the best portion of his herd, of his flock. And Cain only offered, you know, a regular portion. And therefore, that's why God looked upon it. Or because culturally, meat offerings were looked upon better than vegetable offerings. But all in all, what we see in Scripture is it is only by faith that Abel offered the better offering. 
And so regardless of what happens or how it happened, Cain is very upset. He's visibly downcast, visibly angry, visibly upset. So what does God do when he sees that? God asks Cain a question. And this is so profound. You cannot miss this. God asks Cain a question because he's inviting him to be real, to be vulnerable with him, to have an authentic relationship with him. And this echoes what we read in 1 John 1. 1 John 1 verse 5, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we, live, uh, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That word darkness in that text, it means a shroud, right? things that hide in. right? They're unheard, unseen. That darkness is hiddenness. Okay? That darkness is hiddenness. When you come out of that darkness and you are in the light, you are purified and you have fellowship with God. God is inviting Cain to come out of hiding. He's inviting Cain to come out of darkness. And I'll never forget uh, how this was taught. Uh, Pastor Daniel Hill spoke this uh, one time uh, via his mentor, Klein Snodgrass. I'm just going to take credit for it today. Um, this is how it goes. He, he says here in this text of Cain and Abel that sin is described as a predator. It's not internal. It's not behavioral. It's not something that you modify and change about yourself. Sin is waiting for you. It's crouching at your door. It is lying in wait for you, ready to pounce ready to take you. It wants to have you. It wants to own you. It wants to rule over you. That's how sin is described here. And what does God say to Cain after that? He says, but you must rule over it. You must rule over it. What does that mean? Cain, you are not powerless in this situation. You have power in this situation. You are not powerless here. There's, there is something that you can do. And what is that? Come out into the light, Cain. Talk to me. Why are you angry? He's not saying you shouldn't be angry. He's not accusing him like this is bad behavior. These are bad feelings. No, no. Cain, be honest with me. Why are you angry? Why are you angry? Cain obviously doesn't respond. And then Cain kills Abel. And then what happens? What does God do when Cain kills Abel? He asks him another question. Verse 9. Let's look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God already knew because God is God. And it's not like God was trying to trap him and being like, aha, no. That's not what he's doing here. It's another invitation. Cain, what happened? Where's your brother? See, the thing about sin is it thrives in darkness. It thrives when it's hidden. That's what's, what, what's so devious about sin. When sin is covered up, it has power. 
just like secrets. When secrets are hidden, they have power. But when you bring it out into the light, they lose all power. And that's what we see here in this text. What God is trying to do with Cain is he's trying to bring him out. He's giving him space to enter into. He's saying, you can be your authentic self here. Tell me, why are you angry? That is God's invitation to Cain there. See, here's the thing. Sin did not change how God approached Cain. The way he approached Cain, whether he killed Abel or before he killed Abel, same thing. He asked him a question. Sin did not change how God relates to, uh, to Cain. Sin changed the way Cain related to God. Sin changed the way Cain related to God. It changed how he viewed God. It changed how he could be in relationship with God. It was in the hiding. It was in the darkness that created cracks in that relationship that he had with the Lord, even though God was giving him full access to himself. That's what sin does. So what do we need to do to come out of hiding? We need to be vulnerable. We need to be vulnerable, not just transparent. We need to be vulnerable. In the movie, it's actually Abuela's vulnerability that helps mend the relationships with Mirabel and the rest of the family. Because then she's better able to understand What's going on? Where did she come from? What happened in the past? Why is she like that? And uh, Abuela is also able to reflect on her own past and how she got to this place. But that is exactly how you crush the power of sin, is when you're able to confess truly and fully to one another and to God. And we do this thing from the pulpit a lot, right? We talk about our weaknesses and we talk about the ways we messed up and our past. And quite frankly, it sucks and it's kind of embarrassing, right? I, I do not enjoy it. But we do it because our church is founded on a principle that we believe that we're called to live in that type of community where we can share that and we can hear from a brother or a sister, you're forgiven. Jesus forgives you. How powerful is that? If we could live in a community that did that. When we truly and fully confess to him and to others in our vulnerability, when the darkness of our souls is no longer in darkness, That's when we rule over sin. That is the power of Christ. You know, another tool that's really, really handy is the genogram. If you took taking the premarital class with us uh, here at Metro, I love teaching about genograms. Genograms is just a, a study of the generations in your family, patterns that happened, earthquake events, relationships, and just study, not to accuse anyone, but just to look at, man, what's going on here? And we see generational sin, and we bring that out into the light. Why? 
so it no longer has power. We need to be vulnerable. Our second opponent to authentic relationships is performing. Performing. More specifically, performing when your worth or your value is placed in your doing. Your worth or your value is placed in your performance. Um, something that I appreciated, aside from the catchy music in Encanto, was the lyrics of two characters in particular, Luisa and Isabella. So quite early on into the movie, uh, Luisa gets this eye twitch. And we're looking at like, what's wrong with her eye, right? And people think that she's lying. But in actuality, her eye twitch is because she has anxiety. She has anxiety. And the reason why she has anxiety is because people constantly rely on her. And she has to constantly meet their expectations. Because she is this pillar that never fails. Can we see uh, some of Luisa's words? I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. Who am I if I can't carry it all? Who am I if I don't have what it takes? And then there's Isabella. Isabella, who's seemingly perfect, effortlessly perfect. And she can do no wrong. Let's, what, what is her self-talk? What could I do if I just knew it didn't need to be perfect? He just needed to be and they'd let me be. And I thought it was so funny because how many of us ask ourselves those questions in one way or another? I need to do it all. Because in our world, our worth and our value is actually dictated by what we're good at or what role we're called to play. We become performers rather than sons and daughters of God. Am I strong enough? Am I loving enough? Do I make enough money? Do enough people like me? Am I far enough in my career? Do I have respect? Is my career respectable? And the list goes on. I can, I, I can keep going. And this even bleeds into our faith. It bleeds into our prayer lives. Will God respond to me the same way, even though I've sinned recently? Will he bless my family, even though I've been terrible? Or I hear this a lot. God, things are going so well right now. Am I being thankful enough? Or will you take that away because I'm not thankful enough? Like, how messed up is that? How messed up is that? We have to constantly unlearn any measure of love that pertains to doing that is outside of God's pure desire for naked, messed up, and vulnerable people. Anything outside of that is a lie. Anything outside of you being with God, of you being worthy of God's affection, why? Because he deemed it so, is a lie. That is the truth of the gospel. So we're looking at some text here. Genesis 29. Genesis 29. This is a story of Jacob, who is fleeing from Esau at the time. He comes across Laban, who's of his kin. Verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Pause here. I want us to remember that word weak. Let's remember that word weak. Because a lot of times when we say, oh, you have weak eyes, what does that mean? It's like, oh, you need glasses, right? Oh, you have a squint, right? No, that's not what weak eyes is saying here, 
right? The word is actually better translated delicate, delicate. And rabbinic teaching, it actually tells us her eyes were probably like that because she cried so much, right? So I want you to remember that, weak eyes. Verse 19, Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed only like a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah, brought her to Jacob and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as his attendant. So a lot of times we read this and we're like, oh man, poor Jacob, you know, fooled by the old switcheroo. Like, you know, but like, no, poor Leah, poor Leah. Think about Leah. And it's no wonder she has weak eyes of the kind of father that she had to grow up under that would use his oldest daughter to protect his younger daughter. Or by his words, use his older daughter to fulfill custom, to be with a man that did not love her. So, Jacob complains to Laban, and they strike another deal for Rachel, which involves working for him another seven years. Verse 28, and Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter, Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. The Bible is very explicit here. Jacob does not love Leah. Not even a little bit. And back then, you know, even though women are so much more than that, their role was to bear children. That was the role of a wife. And so Leah gets pregnant and gives birth to a son, which is huge. It means that she's not only fulfilled her duty, but because she's given birth to a son, she is faithful because she is preserving the line of Jacob. And so I can only imagine the anxiety and the relief that Leah has when this baby comes out and it's a boy. You know why? So much so, she's so happy that this is a boy that she names her boy Reuben, which means it's a boy. That's literally what Reuben means. She's so happy she had a boy she named her son, it's a boy. But she says something. She says, Surely, now that I have this boy, my husband will love me now. Verse 33, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Very explicit here. Jacob does, still does not love her. He probably loves his son, but he does not love Leah. And so Leah has a second boy, double the blessing, double the faithfulness, and she names her son Simeon. Simeon means God heard me. 
God heard me. And like she says, perhaps in her prayer, in her anguish, in her tears, in her, in her pain, she prayed, God, give me another son. Maybe then Jacob will love me. Verse 34. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. Levi means attached. Reason being is Leah has now given birth to not one, not two, but three sons, three healthy sons. She has fulfilled her role as a woman completely, as a wife, completely, fully, faithfully. Any man would want her as a wife. Because not only has she produced an heir, she is really guaranteed, triple guaranteed that line to continue. So if Jacob were to leave her, that would bring him shame because she had done nothing wrong. And so we see here, she, talk, she doesn't talk about love in this verse. She doesn't say, oh, maybe he'll love me. No, she says, you know what, I, I give up. I'm done. He's never going to love me, but now he's stuck with me because I had three sons. And Levi means attached. Verse 35, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. We don't know what happens between 34 and 35. But something changes inside of Leah. Something changes where she says to herself, I don't need this man's love anymore. I don't need his approval to dictate my worth anymore. I've performed enough. So she gave birth to this son, and she said, God, I will praise you for this son. And Judah means praised. We don't know. We don't know how, but for some reason, Leah turns a new leaf. Her worth is no longer tied to bearing sons for this man. But this time she praises God. And God sees it fit that she doesn't need to have children anymore. But you know what God does? God honors her even further. God uses the line of Judah to bring about his own son, Jesus. It's not through Rachel's children. It's through Leah. Leah, he honors her with that. Because the God, Leah was worthy of love. Leah was worthy of affection. Leah did not have to have any number of sons. She was enough because God said she was enough. As the movie Encanto comes to a climax, Abuela and Mirabel get into like a huge fight, right? The house starts falling apart because the rift in their relationship grows and grows. And Mirabel finally looks at Abuela and she says, I will never be enough for you. And she runs off, right? The house crumbles. She runs off. And Abuela ends up chasing after her and looking for her. 
She finds Mirabel, and they have a moment together. And it's Abuela's vulnerability moment with her. And Abuela begins to reflect on the miracles they received and all the goodness they got from the sacrifice of her husband. And finally, she remembers it was never the gifts that really mattered. Mirabel didn't need a supernatural gift. She didn't need a miracle. She is the miracle. She is the miracle. See, Metro, if you have an authentic relationship with God, you need to believe that you are a gift. Amen. Like, actually, you need to believe that you are a gift. Amen. And I know that language sounds maybe strange to think, oh, I'm a gift, right? But that's, it's scriptural. You see, we talk a lot about our inheritance in heaven. When heaven comes, we have an inheritance. We have a house waiting for us. We have treasures waiting for us. You know what Ephesians says? It says, we are God's inheritance. We are the gift. We are what he's waiting for. We are his expected prize. And all of scripture, the whole Bible, is actually just a constant, persistent pursuit of his people. Giving them space. Trying to bring them back in. Warding them off from evil, bringing them back in, calling them back, entering into covenant with them. Yes, there's discipline because he loves his people. He wants his people to be better, but his grace and mercy drive this pursuit after you over and over again. So how dare you say that you're not a gift to God? How dare you even question your worth? Because he's already declared it so. It was even before he sacrificed his son for your soul. It was even before he did all that. He, when he created you, when he breathed life into your bones, when he touched your skin with his fingers, he said, you are more than enough because you are my miracle. And I wait for you with expectation. That is the heart of God for his people. If we could walk in that, if we could live in that, how different would our relationships with each other be? Would the world be? We are a people that are called to be children. And I, I, that language, it turns people off. So, oh, I'm not a child, right? Fine, fine. You're, called, you're adopted into the family of God. This adoption is so intimate because when you are adopted into that family, right, it's for keeps. It's not as casual. It means that he wants to share everything that he has with you. It's for keeps. Uh, a little while ago, my daughter, her name's Lucy, was sick. We didn't know. You know, we thought it was like sleep regression because she had been regressing. We hadn't been sleeping. So it was like, oh, cry it out. It's 4 a.m. Cry it out. I'm a really light sleeper. So she was fussing, but her fussing sounded different. It wasn't the same. Usually she's just like, whoa, like, because she wants attention. But like, it was really like weak, right? <laughs> She sounded really weak, and I was, like, scared. So I went to check in on her because I was scared. 
I picked her up, and her skin felt like fire. Like, I've never touched such hot skin before. So I woke up my wife, because I was panicking, and we took her temperature, right? Her fever was 104.5 or something like that, really high. And she was not herself. She was really weak, and she was groaning and moaning. We were holding her, and I, I felt so helpless. Right, so we were trying everything. We, we took like warm, like lukewarm water. We like touched her skin with it. And that was like burning her because it was, the temperature difference was too much. But we were trying to cool down her body. Um, you know, we were trying to give her Moltrin. But for babies, you have to like syringe it into their mouth. So we were trying to syringe Moltrin into her mouth. And she's spitting it out. Like she's the worst patient ever. Right? She's doing everything wrong. She's fighting us. She's struggling against us. It's 5.30 in the morning. Like, we're like, oh my gosh, like, what are we supposed to be doing? And finally, after struggling against this baby, she finally calms down. Whatever medicine we got into her mouth, like, I, I don't know why she didn't like it. It's strawberry flavor. It's delicious. But like, she, 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 it, it finally started kicking in. And her, fav- her fever started coming down. And I was holding her for a while. Pastor, my wife, she was holding her for a while. And we were just like in the room watching her. And my wife started singing to her to calm her down. And I remember looking at her. I just started crying. Look at my baby. Again, worst patient ever. My terrible patient. Spit out all the medicine. You fought us the whole way. But I was so proud of her. I was just so proud of her. So proud that this girl, you know, she was so sick. But she was trying her best. She really was. And as my wife sang over her, I felt like this is what God feels for his people. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God takes great joy in you. Even when you suck. I mean that. He means that. God takes great joy in you, even when you're struggling. Even when you're doing everything wrong. No matter how messed up you are, he takes great joy in you because you are his gift. You are his miracle. We are a people that are called to live into that. So do not question your worth or your value or this idea of, am I good enough? God knows how hard it is to just live life. God knows how hard it is to be a single person. God knows how hard it is to deal with people as a single person. The loneliness that you experience. The expectation that's still pressed upon you when you're single. This idea that you're not complete when you're single, which is a lie. This idea that you need to get somewhere else while you're single, which is a lie. God knows that pressure. God knows about all your bad and stupid dates, how exhausting that is. And you know what? He's proud of you. He loves you. He desires goodness for you because you are his gift. 
God knows the dysfunction of your family. He knows all the things that you said and all the crazy things you've done within your family. And you know what? He blesses your family. He loves your family. I know a woman at our church, I tell her all the time, she sings like Nora Jones. I really believe so. And she, she tells me all the time, it breaks my heart. She says, I'm not good enough to worship in front of people. So why? That's not how God feels about your voice. That's not how God feels about you at all. I hear that all the time. I'm inadequate. Since when? Who are you to declare that when God himself said otherwise? God is pursuing you. He's inviting you into a real, authentic relationship, not only with him, but with yourself and with others. Let's embrace that today. No more hiding. Put off performing. Live into who you are. Let's pray together. Let's ask the Lord to speak because we need him to speak. And right now, um, as we invite the Holy Spirit to speak, I'd like you to just confess anything, something. You may have done it, you may have thought it, you may have said it, just confess it. Not, you don't have to do it out loud, don't do it out loud. Just say it to God and say, God, this is me. That was me in that moment. And I want you to hear the Spirit of God tell you, I'm proud of you. You are my gift. And you bring me great joy. Over and over again, that is what Scripture tells us. I love my people. I desire to be with my people. I want them to know me. I want them to be with me over and over again, no matter how far we run. God longs for his people. Put off hiding. Don't give sin power anymore. Stop performing. Enter into your worth, your value, who you are before God. Truly commit to that. And you will experience a power in your relationship with him that you will never have experienced or never thought you could experience. Because that is what God desires for his people. He doesn't withhold things from you. So Father, I just want to commit my family to you. And I ask God, all those who are yearning, Lord, for some sort of approval, some sort of proof that they are worth something. Oh, God, 
Would you break down strongholds and break chains, Lord, in Jesus' name. And that, Lord, there would be freedom experienced to experience you, Lord, in your fullness, Lord God. Not in the confines of what the world demands from us, Lord, but a true freedom, Lord, as a son and a daughter of the King of Kings. Spirit, embrace your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.